Welcome to episode 155 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And today, uh, we don't have a regular interview, uh, but you'll still get plenty of uh, um, uh, outrageous Baker opinion because we're going to, uh, um, instead of the interview, play a... Uh, clip from, well, actually the whole thing, from a debate uh, that I did last week um, at CSIS's Cyber Disrupt uh, 2017 conference over hacking back uh, um, against Greg Nojime and Jamil Jaffer, the original odd couple, uh, uh, arguing that hacking back is a bad idea. And um, I was supposed to be on with Jeremy Rabkin, who got caught in a storm uh, and could not arrive in time. So turned out to be two against one. Uh, you'll listen to that uh, at the end of the news roundup. Uh, and participating in the roundup, Alan Cohn, formerly head of strategy at DHS, uh, uh, now of counsel at Steptoe, uh, and Maury Shank, uh, um, an investor, uh, advisor to technology companies in Europe and former head of our uh, London office. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker. Uh, formerly with NSA and DHS and now holding the record for returning to step out of practice law more times than any other lawyer. Uh, we ought to jump right in. Um, it, it's impossible to ignore this White House wiretap flap, um, and yet I have to say it is completely obvious what's been going on and nobody seems to really want to recognize it. Uh, uh, there was no wiretap of Trump Tower. There was no wiretap ordered on Donald Trump. Uh, um, that was the president overreacting to some articles that he had read and overinterpreting them. Uh, and the press seems absolutely determined to, to say that's what we got to focus on. Was he right or was he wrong? But the fact is that the Obama administration opened a uh, a wiretap or a, a FISA investigation uh, that they knew was going to be focused on the Trump campaign and its relationship to uh, the Russians uh, and then uh, uh, leaked uh, damning information about uh, one of the principles in the Trump uh, uh, policymaking apparatus, uh, Michael Flynn, uh, uh, that derived precisely from those wiretaps uh, and uh, um, that aspect of it continues to aggravate the White House, but the press is determined to say, well, the president got it wrong in his tweets at five in the morning, uh, and that's the only thing that matters. Uh, so we're, we're going to watch Jim Comey, uh, he's on now, I think, uh, say pretty much that. Yes, we have an investigation. No, we didn't actually wiretap. Uh, uh, the president at the orders of the uh, other president. Uh, I, and uh, it'll be months before we actually get to the bottom of uh, who and how uh, the investigation of Russian hacking, which clearly needed to be done, uh, was protected against uh, uh, partisan misuse, which probably didn't happen. So uh, that's it. Uh, uh, if you're reading the papers, you already know that, uh, uh, so I'm not going to spend much time on it. Um, 
That was a good summary. Maybe the president, and it's a good, a good encapsulation. Maybe the president could leave the British and the Germans out of it then. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I thought watching uh, uh, Angela Merkel's body language uh, uh, when he uh, uh, offered that poisoned uh, 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 peace offering was was uh, priceless. Uh, um, uh, somebody said uh, she looked like. Uh, Margaret Dumont being uh, um, uh, uh, dragged into the uh, Marx Brothers uh, 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 movie, uh, uh, a sort of President Rufus T. Firefly uh, at your service. It was bizarre. Um, well, all right. So let's let's talk about other topics. Uh, there is a case that um, has been. Uh, ruled on by the DC circuit called Doe against Ethiopia that I had some high hopes for because it was designed to uh, address um, the possibility of bringing lawsuits against foreign nations that hack American companies uh, stealing their intellectual property or otherwise um, abusing them uh, from abroad. Uh, uh, and kind of to my disappointment, uh, uh, the D.C. Circuit uh, wrote a Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act decision that was pretty unpersuasive and uh, surprisingly um, incurious about uh, uh, the implications so that it was uh, 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 of the uh, uh, ruling that it was coming up with. The, the case was kind of now a pretty standard state hacking case using uh, uh, FinSpy. Uh, uh, it, um, it's a, the, the plaintiff is an Ethiopian uh, living in the United States who has been critical of the Ethiopian government. They apparently managed to get a piece of malware onto his computer and downloaded a bunch of his stuff. Uh, and he sued them saying, you have committed a tort in the United States by uh, installing all this equipment and uh, intercepting my communications. And uh, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which prevents me from bringing a lawsuit against uh, foreign sovereigns, has an exception for torts committed in the United States. This is a tort committed in the United States. Therefore, I should be able to bring the lawsuit. Uh, and the court in a strikingly sparse opinion, said, oh, no, intentional wiretaps require intent. Um, and the intent in this case is all in Ethiopia, not in the United States, and therefore it's not a tort in the United States. Uh, they also said uh, that the uh, uh, sending of the the programming of the uh, attack, the malware, and sending it also occurred outside the United States. This is sort of inconsistent with what most people have assumed, which is that, yeah, if you are the subject of a tort outside the United States and you come back here to die or to um, uh, suffer consequences from that tort, that's not happening in the United States. But if somebody mails you a mail bomb or anthrax or shoots across the border and kills you, uh, um, it, the 
government that's responsible for that can be sued to, under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Uh, but the D.C. Circuit, which just really loathes the uh, Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, increasingly, obviously, uh, um, decided, no, no, you have to have the intent here in the United States. This more or less says that any of these uh, remote torts are going to be unsustainable if they can occur across a border where, you know, you you do a mailing, you shoot something, you take action that has its impact in the United States. That's not good enough because your intent's always going to be outside the United States. Uh, uh, so very disappointing uh, opinion. Maybe not the end of the world for com- companies that want to bring these lawsuits against uh, uh, foreign cyber espionage activities, uh, but I think it's going to be hard to. Certainly, it's going to be hard to sustain those cases under the tortious, uh, uh, the tort exception, and maybe also hard to uh, sustain them under the commercial tort exception, um, uh, unless the cyber espionage occurs at the instance of uh, uh, a state-owned enterprise rather than just uh, uh, some ordinary commercial enterprise. So uh, not a great outcome uh, and probably wrong. Uh, well, I guess we can wait for the Ninth Circuit to uh, come out the other way because this, this sounds like something that the Ninth Circuit should be enthusiastic about uh, allowing to proceed. Um Next, I mean, we're doing nothing but international cases, uh, as far as I can tell. Uh, uh, the ECJ, uh, the European Court of Justice, has finally found some limits to the right to be forgotten. Maury, I know you looked at that case. Yeah, so it involved the Chamber of Commerce of Lecce, a region at the bottom of the heel of Italy, of uh, Italy's boot, against Salvatore Mani. And it was about a 1968 EU directive that requires publication of information on companies in companies registry information in, in the EU, which was amended in 2012 to say processing under that directive is subject to the 1995 data protection directive. Mr. Manny, on the strength of the Google Spain right to be forgotten case, brought, uh, brought a lawsuit saying, well, you should anonymize some information about an insolvency that I had in 1992 because it's making it hard for me to sell some property. And the local court agreed with him. It's uh, said that that information should be anonymized. But then the local Chamber of Commerce appealed that to the Italian Supreme Court, which referred it to the ECJ. And the ECJ said, no, the right to be forgotten applies to search engines. Uh, but for local companies' registries, uh, there is a data protection law doesn't win. And it's up to each EU member state to decide what the time limit or process is for taking information out of the company's registry. So it basically, uh, it, it looks as though the uh, uh, ECJ is sort of slowly drawing a bead on saying that the um, uh, right to be forgotten applies to American tech companies, uh, but maybe not to newspapers in Europe, maybe not to government registries in Europe, but maybe only to Google. Well, I wouldn't be so uh, U.S. versus EU about that. What, they, what they've said is that it applies to search engines. You know, it applies to these new, uh, you know, Internet vehicles for finding information all over the place, but it's been repeatedly em- emphasized by various sources, including the ECJ, that it doesn't apply to deletion of the underlying records. And this was a clear case where somebody was trying to get the underlying record um, 
deleted, and they said data protection law doesn't uh, doesn't require that, and it certainly doesn't require it for newspapers either. Maybe it's a USEU thing, but I. I think there's a legal principle here. Maybe. I'm I'm struck by uh, uh, how much these cases tell us about what a um, a disgrace it is to go through bankruptcy in Europe, uh, uh, which may say something about why uh, uh, Europe's tech uh, industry has never really taken off. Uh, uh, but both of these cases were about saying, uh, gee, uh, you failed once. Uh, we never want to do business with you again. Yeah, it is very painful. I mean, in the UK, it's not quite as bad. Um, I am a startup investor, and I've had a couple of startups fall over where I was director, and you do get asked about that, but it's not at all disqualifying here. It's not quite a badge of honor as it is in uh, Silicon Valley. But in places like Italy, Spain, it, it still is quite a painful thing to have happen to you. Well, not as painful as saying something that the German government does not like. Uh, 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 the SDP justice minister uh, in Germany has proposed $50 million fines for social media companies that don't take down a government-disapproved speech within uh, a matter of days? Yes, he has, although it's not exactly clear what conduct it would be that would draw such a big fine. It's, that seems to be a maximum proposed fine, and it seems to be for not putting in place adequate processes for deletion of content that's illegal or slanderous, defamatory, etc., for things, for content that's just wrong, it's not obvious that that would be within the scope of the law. It, it seems to be directed at the process that Facebook and the like has in place. Well, and, and Facebook said in one of the stories I saw that they have 700 uh, uh, Facebook employees just in Germany kind of reviewing this and taking stuff down uh, to, if they are afraid it won't meet uh, government standards. Uh, that's a staggering um, yeah, I mean, I think this is a, it's an EU employment effort to uh, create regulatory obligations that require the big internet companies to hire more people. We know Google has hired a ton of people to review right to be forgotten requests, uh, and these kind of requirements don't seem to be tailing off. Yeah. Uh, okay. R- remarkable. Uh, um, so the Justice Department has uh, spoken on the Yahoo case. They actually indicted a whole bunch of uh, uh, people, including two Russian spies and a couple of hackers. Uh, that's um, that's sort of a um, – well, the story that's told, it's a very detailed story, suggests that there were a couple of FSB officers – who were then uh, assigning a variety of uh, tasks to uh, people who were basically criminal hackers. Uh, it is a remarkable story of just how integrated uh, the FSB and the criminal underground have become in the use of cyber intrusion tools. Uh, so uh, a... a uh, a fascinating story in these Yahoo indictments. Uh, oh, uh, speaking of cybercrime, uh, the uh, Homeland Security Advisor for uh, the White House, Tom Bossert, gave a speech at the same conference where I was uh, participating in the debate. Uh, and uh, among the things that 
Tom said was that the administration, the new Trump administration, was going to make a big push to try to deal with botnets. Uh, uh, he clearly thinks that, one, they're a serious threat, and two, a threat that can be addressed. Uh, uh, and um, uh, he, he wasn't particularly clear. We've seen in, in drafts uh, of the executive order some focus on botnets. Um, Bossert said... Uh, he intended this to be a voluntary effort, uh, uh, but uh, we'll see exactly how he intends to address botnets in a voluntary way. I, I think it's clear that you could address it, but I'm not sure you can do it without turning to regulatory tools. So that's that would be my uh, assessment. Uh, Alan, I don't know whether you had uh, a different view about uh, the likelihood of addressing botnets. Well, it was interesting. You know, in the main body of, of Tom's speech, he talks about this voluntary uh, effort. He talks about looking at the, the higher topography rather than the bottom of the mountain. It's, it's in the Q&A that he starts to get a little bit more detailed um, and talks about that, that really we need to figure out a, a voluntary way to uh, increase efforts at looking at network traffic and shunting it a little bit more effectively. Uh, and I think our, right now our approach is to have the ISPs shunt that traffic, uh, and there's a cost to that, right? So I think that, uh, I think in that Q&A, he hints a little bit more directly at what he's, what he's thinking and what we may see from the administration either in the form of, you know, a, a declaratory statement in, in an EO, uh, potentially in a regulatory um, a regulatory approach, but maybe just in the context of a meeting uh, or even a tweet in all caps. Yeah. Um, so uh, you spent a fair amount of time uh, in the Obama administration worrying about um, uh, Homeland Security's uh, cybersecurity programs and how they were doing in the budget. Uh, uh, the Big bad news budget, uh, from the Trump administration. Well, bad news for, uh, uh, public radio and things of that sort. Uh, turns out to be pretty good for Homeland Security. That is to say, uh, at least the cybersecurity budget is going to go up by a billion and a half. Uh, some of that's coming out of other parts of the Homeland Security Department. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, other than the Defense Department, that's pretty much the only part of the um, uh, the government that is having a substantial increase as a result of this new skinny budget. Yes, I think that's right. And leaving aside kind of the merits or, uh, of uh, cuts or reallocations in, in other parts of the department, certainly adding $1.5 billion um, to uh, DHS programs, in the cyberspace area makes a lot of sense. In this instance, um, you know, we're looking at programs like Einstein and continuous diagnostics and mitigation uh, and other activities that are either federal network facing or critical infrastructure facing. I think it'll be an interesting question on the DHS side. Um, you know, is this money that's just meant slash needed to uh, complete the previous program plans, which is important, but maybe let's say less than ambitious uh, yeah. or if this is going to be paired with some type of a, you know, more dynamic approach uh, my, to get basic protections installed. My impression is that uh, uh, DHS's um, achievements uh, with the money they had kind of get a C plus 
from the incoming administration. They are not eager to say, oh, why don't we pay you more to do more of that? Uh, my guess is that uh, exactly how uh, the cybersecurity enterprise is being run is going to get a much tougher, tougher look than the question of whether it should be funded. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think it's welcome. Uh, and then yes. over at the FBI, they also get some uh, some increase of funding for uh, for agent and analyst efforts for a range of issues, including cyber threats, uh, and also uh, addressing uh, public safety and national security risks that result from malicious actors' use of encrypted products and services, uh, which was an interesting statement. Yeah, I, you know, I, I have a particular axe to grind with, uh, how law enforcement agencies, uh, seek budget. They basically say, all my, all my agents cost this much, so that's just mine, uh, and I'll do with those guys what I want. But if you want your priorities taken care of, uh, give me another $60 million and I will hire some more agents, uh, who I will incorporate into the base in a, in a year or two when you've forgotten that you gave them to me for this purpose. Uh, uh, and so, um, budgeting with law enforcement agencies always seems to consist of entirely of plussing up, uh, uh, without ever looking at the question of how people are utilizing their law enforcement assets, uh, uh, prior to the uh, the budget plus-ups. Yes, definitely. Uh, needs to be paired with kind of a list of investigative priorities and deprioritizations, as, as I think you see across the rest of the, the budget framework. Yep. Okay. Um, German Parliament. Uh, uh, Maury, uh, uh, the Parliament uh, in Germany did something other than stand up for data protection. They actually cut back a little on, or at least they resisted, Privacy uh, 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 forces to some degree. Um, this is this looks like it's kind of a uh, the Germans slowly adopting a British view of what kind of counterterrorism technology should be prioritized. Yeah, that's not a bad description of it. You know, the EU Data Protection Directive has to be implemented across the EU, but member states are free to be stricter, and Germany is one place where they've been particularly strict. So uh, they had to change the law to allow certain kinds of public video surveillance, and they've just done that um, to allow more public video cameras, uh, closed-circuit TV, and also to expand use of body cameras by police officers. And like you say, here in London, we've got, I think, the world's greatest concentration of um, uh, uh, closed-circuit video cameras, unless maybe the area around Tiananmen Square in Beijing and it's pretty popular because you walk around London and you know that just about everywhere you're going to be on camera. So uh, it's not so much that you're happy to be on camera as you know, as the bad guys know that they're going to be on camera if they try to do something to you. Yeah. Well, that, so the Germans, you know, slowly surrendering to reality, uh, but uh, finding it easier to surrender to a British reality than an American reality, uh, as you might expect. Uh, all right. Uh, a couple of little uh, items. Uh, at that same event, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the White House more or less uh, agreed to uh, disclose that Rob Joyce is going to head their uh, uh, cyber security unit at the National Security Council. Uh, he's a very talented guy. This is a great move. Uh, Trump administration should feel good that they were got somebody of that caliber. Uh, 
Trump's intel chief is going to be confirmed. Uh, uh, Dan Coats uh, is going to be the uh, uh, director of national intelligence. Uh, and uh, Judge Coe has rejected uh, the Google wiretap settlement that I made so much fun of. My bet is that while Judge Coe resists for a while, at the end of the day, uh, uh, that wiretap settlement is going to get approved. So uh, that's it for the uh, news roundup. Uh, we're now going to uh, listen to a uh, debate on hacking back, uh, and uh, I'll hand the uh, microphone over to Shane Harris, who is uh, introducing all of the participants and the question. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Shane Harris with the Wall Street Journal. I understand the bar is open, so hopefully you're in an argumentative mood uh, for this debate. Uh, don't throw anything until later. Um, this is going to be an Oxford-style Intelligence Squared debate, as we said. And the question here before us is the following proposition. U.S. companies should be authorized to hack back against attackers in cyberspace. I probably don't have to explain that proposition too much to this audience, but essentially what we're asking here is the question of, if you are an organization, an entity that gets hacked, should you have the authority to then go after the people who did that to you uh, and take some measure of justice, which our various uh, debaters will probably spell out uh, what that might mean as well. But that is the basic proposition. U.S. companies should be authorized to hack back against attackers in cyberspace. Um, I'm going to start by introducing our debaters. For Team Affirmative, we have Stuart Baker. Uh, Stuart's uh, filling in amiably, uh, or admirably for Jeremy Rapkin, who couldn't be here, so you're going to get the full Baker on this uh, today. <laughs> and for the Team Negative, U.S. companies should not be authorized to hack back against attackers in cyberspace. We have Greg Nojime with the Center for Democracy and Technology and Jamil Jaffer from IronNet Cybersecurity. Um, so without further ado... We're going to go to the first affirmative speaker, Stuart Baker, who will have five minutes for an opening statement. All right. So I, what I thought I'd do is start out by defining the terms, because hackback is not perfectly obvious. And, and what am I asking you to vote affirmative on? Uh, uh, hacking, I, I think uh, it's the easiest way to define it is the way the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act uh, uh, defines it, what it makes illegal, which in essence is to take action on a network without authorization, to take data from the network, to cause the network not to function, to cause the data to disappear. All of those things are fine on your network and a felony on anybody else's network. That's the basic rule. And so the, the fundamental rule that we've had for the last 30 years with the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is stay in your network, uh, defend yourself, and don't leave. Uh, and I'm arguing, in essence, and hope you will uh, agree, that that is the wrong rule for today's world. Uh, what are the things that we ought to be able to do outside of our network? Let me, let me give you some ex concrete examples from uh, historical practice. It was very common, still happens, uh, that uh, um, cyber uh, attackers, spies and the like, uh, who are stealing data, package it up inside your network, and they have a server located outside your network. It may not belong to them, or it may belong to them, and uh, they log onto that network and pop your data into it. And I, often now, with the tools that we have, you can actually see their logon credentials for that server which means you have this like golden moment if you're fast enough and good enough where you can log on too. 
And you can see your data there. You can take it back or you can re-encrypt it or you can put a beacon on it so that when it's finally opened by the guy who is actually paying for the espionage, you know who he is because it, it, uh, the beacon tries to crawl out and phone home. Or you can sit on that server and look around and say, who else has been victimized by this same team that, uh, so other companies ha are having their data downloaded? And you can warn victims who don't even know they're victims yet and stop the crime in progress. Or best, you can sit there and wait for the guy who's collecting all this stuff to log on from wherever he's logging on from, Moldova or Shanghai, and uh, uh, start collecting information about him. Uh, now, all of those things are things we ought to be doing. The more of that we do, the less cybercrime is going to pay. And every one of those things is a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act today. So if you think, God, I, those are things that I'd sort of like to at least try some of them, uh, you should be voting in the affirmative. Now, you might say, well, how about the cops do it instead of the private sector? And the well, I gave this speech before to the Justice Department. They were very good and very responsive, and they went and worked on that problem and found some districts where they had a lot, co a lot of cooperation. And they very proudly came back to me and said, we have some districts. If you have a client who has this problem and they bring it to us, we can get a warrant in 48 hours. Now... You know, the NRA has a slogan uh, in favor of self-defense. Uh, uh, when seconds count, the police are only minutes away. <laughs> but in cyberspace, they're like 48 hours, if you're lucky, away. That's not going to work. And, and there's more fundamental reason why that, uh, they're that far away. And it is this. There are no cops checking doorknobs and looking for suspicious activity and crimes in uh, 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 occurring in cyberspace. There's nobody walking a beat because all of the territory where the crimes are occurring and the suspicious activity is occurring is inside private networks and they're not going to invite the cops in to wander around looking for suspicious activity. The people who are doing that are private sector professionals charged with providing cybersecurity. If you want the kind of instant response and uh, uh, that hot pursuit of people who are engaged in these activities, you're going to have to ask the professionals who are already there. You may have to regulate what they do. You may have to license what they do. But you're going to have to ask the people who are actually close to the data to gather it uh, rather than expecting 48 hours the cops to find it. Thank you. Okay. So now, uh, Greg Nodrime, you will have five minutes to make your opening statement to the audience. If only things were so simple. If only they were that simple. Stuart, you get to have your opinions, but you don't get to have alternative facts. We need to talk about what actually happens in the real world. What happens in the real world is that it's very hard to attribute attacks to a particular person or to a, to, to a particular entity. The problem with hacking back is that there's a huge risk of harm to innocent third parties. Remember, they're the ones through whose systems the attack has been routed. If you vote for this proposition, you're voting for making them victims twice, first of the original attack and then of the hackback attack. Attribution is at best imperfect. 
and countermeasures directed against an attacker often fall on an innocent third party. Let's think about uh, a cyber attack that's actually routed through one of those innocent third parties. I'm going to pick a hospital. Data could be stolen from the hospital. I'm sorry, data could be stolen from a company parked at the hospital's network where it goes through the hospital, the attack goes through the hospital, and then the counterattack comes back toward the hospital. How does the hospital interpret that company's effort to find its data? To the hospital, that is a cyber attack. It's going to record an intrusion. It's going to implement an incident response program. It's going to call up its cyber insurer. It might call the FBI. It might call the state attorney general. It's going to engage its legal consultants. We're going to call them the hackback firm for this example. And it's going to expend a lot of money dealing with this, uh, what it perceives to be an attack. Now, the hackback firm that the hospital uh, hires, I'm sorry, the hackback firm that's hired by the company, it might identify an encrypted file on the hospital's network that it thinks contains the client's stolen data. And they're going to take steps to either delete the file or retrieve the file. But sometimes the hackback firm is going to get it wrong. And they're going to actually be deleting or retrieving encrypted data that it thinks belongs to its client, but in fact does not, belongs to the hospital. And in our case, the hospital is going to suffer, and so are the patients, because that data could be critical to uh, patient care. Even if the hackback firm gets it right and deletes the right piece of data or retrieves the right piece of data, we're still not out of the woods. Because in the typical attack, in the real world, um, the stolen data file is copied to multiple servers. It could be in multiple countries. And it's not good enough to identify one and deal with that one file. Now we have a twice-injured victim the hospital. We also have an injured client of the hackback firm. Their data hasn't been retrieved because it's in many different places. And we don't have a solution. Now, who's going to pay the hospital for the loss it suffered? Who's going to pay the patient if that patient gets damaged because information necessary to care was deleted? I can guarantee you this. If hacking back is authorized by law, it won't be that hackback firm they're going to get legal liability immunity, and nobody's going to pay. These companies are going to be left to suffer. And the story gets even worse, because a hacking operation might well violate the laws of a foreign country through which the attack was launched. Now we have a very unhappy company indeed. Not only do they face possible liability um, for the damage that its hackback firm caused, but it could face criminal liability as well under the laws of foreign countries. Current law prohibits hacking back, but it doesn't leave companies defenseless. They can monitor communications passing over their networks. They can intercept and use them to protect their uh, property. And they can engage in defensive measures to mitigate these attacks. Congress just passed legislation, the Cybersecurity Act of 2015, that allows companies to detect, prevent, and mitigate attacks. But after years of consideration, after years of debate, they decided not to authorize hackbacks. The law specifically prohibits destroying, rendering unusable, 
or providing an authorized access to a network or information shared on a network. And I want to leave you with one last thought. Remember the Sony hacks? Sony's data was stolen, put out, put out in public. Imagine if Sony had hacked back. Sony doesn't get to make that decision. Okay. Uh, now you will channel Jeremy Rabkin for five minutes. <laughs> okay. So I, Jeremy Rabkin has written a great uh, article called Hacking Back Without Cracking Up, by, and uh, these remarks are drawn from it. Uh, he essentially says uh, that most of what Greg has told you about the terrible consequences of hacking back is bogus. If you just do what he's suggesting, which is not just authorize random uh, uh, attacks back, but licensing professionals who have a vested interest in observing the rules that you have set uh, so that they will exercise a special care to avoid the kinds of harms that uh, uh, we're being uh, told are imminent if hackback is allowed. Uh, uh, remember, I only have to persuade you that something outside of your network should be permitted, and having licensed investigators who can lose their licenses if they act improperly, uh, it, it, but are authorized to act outside the network to collect evidence about who's carrying out the attack, is action outside of your network. Uh, he spends a lot of time talking about the question that uh, Greg raised, uh, uh, which is, uh, what are the international consequences here? Uh, what if we anger people uh, uh, by allowing our private sector to uh, engage in this kind of investigative activity? Uh, and uh, he says, well, supposedly it causes a big international incident. But in fact, we've seen reports, some of the best reports, the reports that really told us how screwed we were. The GhostNet report from 2008 uh, uh, or the, uh, uh, the Mandiant report on Unit 61398. Those are things that broke ground that the federal government was afraid to break and change the nature of our debate. Those were done by private sector entities about the activities of the PLA. I don't remember the PLA suddenly uh, changing its uh, uh, posture toward the United States because they'd been outed other than to retreat. Uh, so uh, there are, there's real value in doing this and we should not assume that doing this will create inter international incidents. Uh, uh, Sometimes, you know, if you spend all your time worrying about provoking the other guy, it's indistinguishable from surrender. I, uh, sometimes you might want to say, you know, maybe the Russians who've been doing the hacking, maybe the Chinese who've been doing the hacking, or the Iranians should worry about whether they're provoking us, uh, rather than us saying, well, if we do anything to defend ourselves, we might provoke them. Last, uh, he, he talks about the uh, value uh, of uh, engaging in this, in this activity and analogizes it to something I think is uh, interesting, which is human rights reports. Now, Amnesty International and Human Rights First gather intelligence about human rights abuses by governments all across the world. And much of the time, when they're out in country gathering this information, they're probably breaking local law, which you know protects 
uh, government agencies from having their activities exposed. Uh, we do not say, oh, it could be a terrible international incident about that. We say, great, we think this is a valuable contribution to the public debate about what government should be doing. And the State Department doesn't uh, say shut it down because it might create an international incident. They say, this is great. We're going to rely on these reports to make our own reports about human rights. Uh, uh, let me... Uh, close with this. Uh, uh, the, in cyberspace, as I said, the cops uh, have, are at a great disadvantage. Uh, but even when, we, when the cops have all the advantages in physical space, we recognize there are things that the cops can't do, won't do, and that the private sector has to step up and pay for additional protection. If ever there was a, a, a circumstance where we needed the cyberspace equivalent of the private investigators we license, the uh, repo men we, uh, we license, the uh, mall and hospital security guards that we license, uh, uh, cyberspace is the place where we need additional authorities subject to careful regulation. Thank you. Okay. And now Jamil Jaffer for uh, the final opening statement. Five minutes to you, Jamil. Great. So, uh, so Shane, thanks for having me. And to CSIS and Denise, thanks for having me here. It's a real treat for me to be here today because I'm on the same side for the first time in history as Greg Nojime, um on topics uh, of cybersecurity and surveillance. So this that, is an exciting moment for that me. That should give you some pause. Well, no. <laughs> we, we are on the side of right and good here today, Stuart. Um, because, look, the thing about it is, Stuart, first of all, you know, you guys should always look out for this trick. When a lawyer tells you I'm going to define the terms, they're going to define the terms in a way that ends the debate and lets them win. Okay? So that's the Stewart trick, right? The trick is we're going to talk about hackback as being this very limited set of things that are non-destructive. We're just going to go look around, maybe have a little beacon. We're not going to do anything bad. Nothing's going to happen. It's all going to be fine. Oh, and by the way, He's going to tell you what the law allows you to do and does allow you to do, and he's going to be able to then manipulate your decision. He's going to tell you the CFAA stops you from doing anything outside your network. Well, that's just not true, right? The reality is that you can install a beacon on your files before they leave, before they're stolen. If they then go out and beacon out, it is not a CFAA violation. Now, Stuart, I know, debates this with his clients and helps his clients. I'm pretty sure, and I don't know this for a fact, but I will bet you anything, Stuart has probably helped his clients do that very technique. Right? So the notion that somehow that's barred by the law, now, it is barred by the law when it's on somebody else's server, and then you go creeping over to it and install your beacon then. And there's very good reason for that. You can also, by the way, sort of talk about, well, you might want to go re-encrypt on that server. Well, why would you re-encrypt it? Just encrypt it the first time on your system so when they steal it, they can't access it, right? This is a good argument for strong encryption that I know that Greg has made quite a bit. I share that view on strong encryption. So there are a lot of things you can do without going into somebody else's network that would give you the same protection that Stuart talks about that you can do on your own network and that don't violate the CFA. But why do we have these rules, right? I know with a lot of us technologists and those of us who work in the industry, there's a conceit that cyber is different. It's really different than the real world. But in a lot of ways, it's not that different. And the rules we apply are not that different, right? Today, you have your home and you're secure in that. You can guard it with a gun. The Second Amendment protects that right. And in the, same, the same thing is true in cyberspace. You can guard your own network up to your borders. And in fact, you can even go outside your network as long as you're cro not crossing into somebody else's network or into somebody else's system. Just like you can't go into somebody else's home to take back your purse if stolen. If a mugger mugs you and starts running down the street, you can chase him. You can tackle him. 
What you can't do is tackle them once they're inside their own house or somebody else's house. Why? That's their property. Same thing in cyberspace. There's a concern that you might harm that other person's property, that you might harm that other person, and the right people to do that job are law enforcement or other federal authorities or state and local authorities. Well, Stewart says, well, look, well, there's no authorities in cyberspace. Nobody patrols cyberspace looking for crime. Well, of course, that's true, and that is the way, in fact, we want it. We want a free and open Internet, right? But guess what? There's no cops running around Sony Corporation either. They have private security inside their, inside their company on their own property. There's no cops roaming around looking for intruders on Sony's property. Yes, they're looking at the boundaries, but not inside Sony's property. What does Sony do when they find an intruder? They hold them temporarily, and they call the police. Same thing here. If that intruder gets off their property with Sony's property, what do they do? They chase him. But when they roll into the next company, Sony can't come barreling through with their private security guards and knocking them out, can they? Of course not. Why? Because we believe in protecting private property. We believe in not causing externalities to others who may not even be the actual culprits. Right? Our laws protect them. And it makes sense. And that's why the CFA is written the way it is. That's why our rules are the way they are. That's why the rules should stay the way they are. Right? And so this notion somehow, by the way, that, you know, 48 hour warrants and, you know, a, a gun gives you, a gun protects you in seconds and, and it takes minutes for the cops to arrive. To be sure. That's why we let you defend yourself well. That's why CISA allows you to defend yourself inside your network. But it draws that line on once you cross into somebody else's network. And that's a sensible line, always has been. And so you can hop pursue people. You can pursue them. You just can't pursue them once they're inside someone else's network. And that's all right. And so, you know, this notion somehow that we're in a different place today. and Oh, this whole provocation notion, right? This whole notion of provocation. Well... To be sure, we're being provoked in cyberspace. We're being provoked every day. We have our IP owned by Chinese companies and by the Chinese government. We have our elections manipulated by the Russians. And we do little about it. But that is not, and the answer to that is not authorize IBM to go do it, authorize Sony to go do it, authorize Target to do it. It certainly is an argument for the US government to do better, but it is not an answer to export that out to the private sector. Okay, those are the opening statements. You guys are doing such a good job staying on time, by the way. It's almost like I don't even have to be here. No. Now, for the rebuttals. Now, each side is going to have four minutes to respond to these opening statements and to counter and rebut each other's arguments. So now you get to talk directly to each other if you want as well. And I reserve the right now as the moderator to interject questions uh, and responses as we go uh, at my discretion. Um, so Stuart is going to speak first to rebut for four minutes, and then Greg and Jamil are going to take two minutes each for their rebuttal. So we will now have eight minutes of rebuttal total. So Stuart, the floor is yours. For four All right. Minutes. So I, I, I do appreciate Greg saying that you're not entitled to your own facts, certainly not alternative facts. Uh, I, um, but in fact, uh, uh, you are going to need to withdraw some of your arguments. Uh, the idea that you should keep in everything on your network encrypted all the time uh, is a recipe for never being able to use the data. It has to be decrypted to use it, uh, and that's when it gets stolen. Uh, uh, and so that's a, a, a red herring. The notion that a server that has been set up by bad guys to take all of the stuff that they're downloading from 50 other companies uh, on some hospital server, as you'd like to imagine it, uh, um, and uh, that the only logon that has them freaking out is the one that comes from a victim who's following their data is 
crazy. There would have been hundreds of logons from the bad guy to both to collect the data and then to download it again. Uh, and so you're making up a hypothetical that is, is unlike anything that would happen in the real world. And I have to say, you've got a choice of equities here. There's the person whose stuff was stolen, who is pursuing his stuff. And then there's the, I will not characterize him, the person who managed to set up a, uh, uh, a, a server that is so poorly secured that it looks like a great place to act as a hub for uh, cyber espionage. Uh, uh, as between the two of them, who deserves more of our sympathy? Apparently, you'd reserve your sympathy for the person who was so negligent in setting up their own security that all the rest of us are victims of that person. I'm not sure that's the, the person who deserves the greatest sympathy uh, among the folks that uh, we're talking about here. And finally, uh, the claim that, uh, of course, there will be immunity from these people is making up the facts in the way that uh, Jamil suggested a lawyer would. Uh, uh, that uh, uh, this proposal guarantees immunity. It doesn't at all. In fact, the whole point of it would be to say one of the things you have to be worried about is if you cause damage to an innocent party, you're going to have to pay for it. That's part of the deal. And I think people would take that deal in a heartbeat because there are many ways to avoid causing harm and very few ways in, in the hypotheticals I've laid out where actual harm is going to occur. Uh, uh, and, uh, and finally, the idea that you aren't going to be able to actually stop cybercrime because the data will be passed on. That's possible, I, I, I grant you. That does not mean you will not be able to identify the guy who's logging on, that you won't be able to identify other victims, that you won't be able to re-encrypt uh, uh, or beacon data that's, uh, uh, that's there. Uh, if one of those tactics doesn't work, then people will stop. You don't need to say, we gotta, we gotta have a, make it a felony to do that because it might not work. You know, if it doesn't work, it won't happen. Thank you. Stuart, can you just take 30 seconds that you have left and address the point of why, why is having, being able to put a beacon on the data that you have now, which is perfectly legal, why is that insufficient? So uh, you're right. I, I have given advice on this, uh, and, and I would say uh, it is if you are a risk-averse general counsel, you will not take the risk that the general that the Justice Department's view will be you knew that the effect of this was going to be felt in somebody else's network. Consequently, you are extracting information from that network and sending it back to you. Uh, uh, many if people will Stewart, not take If that you're risk. a risk-averse counsel, you're not going to take advantage of your bill right. either, yeah, where you've got victim liability. Okay. All right. Now. <laughs> It's coming off your tongue. Yeah, let's step outside. <laughs> All right, now Greg is going to is going to rebut for two minutes, and then Jamil will have two minutes also. So at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I think what we're talking about here is a, diff, a, a disagreement between what should be the role of a private company yes. that has suffered an attack and what should be the role of government. Yes. And what what Jamil and I think is that once you are going outside your own property and you're entering the property of someone else, that's government land. I don't want to license some private party to do that. I don't want to do that, Stuart. It, I just don't trust the private party. They have this incentive that is different from what the government's incentive would be. 
as it's fighting that criminal attack. And I understand that incentive. It's very basic to us humans, you know. They stole my stuff. I want to go get it. I want to destroy that stuff so they can't use it. I might even want to hurt them. Yes, that's very human. But we don't allow that in our society. We don't. We say, if you're going to go outside into somebody else's property, that's a police function. And in this world, in this world, where the other person's property might be the property of a foreign government, a government that has weapons, and a government that would interpret that entry onto its property and that destruction of data on its property as an attack, I don't want companies making that decision, Stuart. That's a governmental decision, and we have to reserve it to them. Um, Stuart never did respond adequately, in my view, to this problem of effectiveness, the effectiveness of the proposal, that once the data is copied and sent out to multiple different servers, the, the, the counterattacking company has to find every copy. That is very hard to do. And if they don't find every copy, then the result is going to be that they don't succeed, and we've taken a big risk, and we've gotten no return. Okay. Now, Jamil, we'll have two minutes, and maybe I'll posit a question, sure. and maybe you can take, take this in your response, too. But you're talking about creating not wanting to create incentives for companies to go do this, because that's not what we do. Why not just create powerful disincentives for them not to screw up and hold them liable if they do? mess up in the hackback. In other words, what Seward is essentially saying is hold them accountable if they break something or they do something wrong in the process. But, Jamil, over yeah, to so you. I'll, maybe I'll, I'll answer that question, Shane, and I'll also take a, a, a first leave off uh, or start off where, where Greg left off, which is, you know, the problem is if this data gets distributed very rapidly, you're playing a game of whack-a-mole, right? And you're not going to succeed, right? Ultimately, the data's gone. It's been distributed. You're not getting it back. This whole taking your data back, it's not a real thing, right? And so we've got to look at the downside of taking it back and weigh that against the real potential you're going to stop the problem from, from expanding and, and getting out there. So I don't think it's a real solution. But to answer Shane's question, right, why not just make it, why not just disincentivize bad action or mistaken action, right, which is a compelling point. Stuart made a similar point, right? The problem, of course, is, particularly in this environment, as Greg talks about, what we have here is a lot of nation-state activity. We have massive theft by China. We have massive uh, intrusions by the Russian government setting themselves up for a potential conflict, right? We have, we have destructive attacks carried out by the Iranians and North Koreans. Actual destruction of physical devices, making them, making them unusable through cyber-enabled means, right? These are all nation states. Now, as a traditional matter, right, we don't expect Target to have surface-to-air missiles on their roof to protect against, uh, against the Russian missile threat, right? Yet today in cyberspace, we expect Target to protect against script kiddies, nation states, and criminal groups all alike. And so, yes, Stuart makes a good point. We have a real problem today. But the answer to that problem is not deputize every single company in the economy to solve your problem like we're in the Wild West and there are sheriffs. The answer is get the government better. Make the government work with the private sector. Collaborate. Figure out a solution to this problem that's realistic and capable and not just a simple short-term solution that's going to lead to worse outcomes for everyone. Because at the end of the day, the Wild West was great for what it was. But it didn't last. And why didn't it last? Because it's unstable. And so Stewart makes an argument that we need to bring stability to the system, but his, his solution is ultimately fraught with instability. And so we need to ensure the government and the private sector get better, but not transfer roles. Okay. Now we're going to move into questions from the audience. So I will invite folks. Uh, do we have a mic that's going around? Or Okay. 
If you have a question, please put up your hand now, and then the teams are each going to have uh, two minutes for a response or rebuttal to those questions. We have a question back here. I saw your hand up first or in the back. Yeah. So uh, my name is Ken Rogers. My question is, what standards would you put in place to make sure that the corporate cyber cops wouldn't become the mall cops? That's a question for both. You're directing both of you. Okay, great. Um, who would like to take a first response to that? Why don't I start? Okay. Uh, the reason, my fear is they are mall cops today because all they can do is act inside their network and people can stand outside the network and thumb their nose at them uh, and get away with the uh, activities. And because the police are not there and never will be there, that's the problem. It's not a matter of resources. We're just never going to put the FBI in our networks to watch for suspicious activity and crimes in progress. Uh, and uh, uh, it, I'm kind of surprised to hear that uh, that's a proposal from that side, although I recognize that Greg didn't make it. Uh, uh, so uh, I, would, I would suggest that we, uh, and maybe it's more appropriate that Jamil did, uh, I, 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 the way to make sure that they are not ineffective is to give them cautiously, incrementally, under regulation and with scrutiny, authority to take action and see what works and what doesn't work, what uh, risks we're running and what risks we're not. And if we see things that work, we should expand their authority. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to take one, uh, respond to one thing that uh, uh, Greg said. Uh, he said, uh, this is not something for the private sector. We can't trust the private sector with this. We have to trust government. I've spent a lifetime in Washington, as has Greg. Greg has always been on the civil liberties side of the, uh, 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 the debate. That's the first time in my life I've heard him say, oh, this is a job where we have to trust government. I, and I, I do kind of wonder, you can, you can tell me, in Maslow's hierarchy of, uh, uh, is it, is, is government's no longer at the bottom. Victims of crime are down there a little further. Oh, is that right? Come on. Uh, Be serious. Uh, Be serious. You'll get a response. <laughs> uh, so uh, that's, uh, I'll stop there and let you respond. Okay, and, and respond to the okay, audience member's question. Two, please. I mean, Two I mean, minutes, please. Obviously, this is a governmental function. That's what I'm talking about, Stuart. Um, I'm not saying trust the government to um, destroy other people's data. I'm saying if I have to choose, and I think we do, between whether it's a governmental function to do something as risky as going on to another person's property, um, I, want to, I, I think it's a governmental function and not a private sector function. Look, I'm glad that Stewart admitted that, that the corporate defenders today, I don't think they're all mall cops, but I'm glad he admitted they're mall cops because it, it makes us win this debate right here. Do you really want Paul Blart going and attacking the North Koreans and starting a land war in Asia? I don't think so. It's exactly why we don't let Paul Blart go running outside his mall. By the way, he's the cop in Mall Cop, the movie, That's right? That's the actual mall cop. Yeah, the actual, okay. the actual mall cop. So you don't want that buffoon, right, running outside the network and blundering around inside of other people's houses, God forbid, or God forbid, foreign nations who, as Greg points out, have real weapons, right? Because everyone thinks, you know, we have this conceit in cyberspace that, oh, well, if it happens to be in cyberspace, I have to respond in cyberspace. Or, or if it happens to somebody else in cyberspace, they'll respond in cyberspace. No! No, not at all. 
To the contrary, we can and will, and have, have made a declared national policy to use all means available to us to respond to attacks in cyberspace. And the same is true of other nations. So it's great that, you know, that Stuart's telling us, well, we don't know. They, may, they probably won't respond. Well, God forbid they do. And God, for, God forbid that Paul Blart starts that war with North Korea or Iran or China or Russia, right? That is the fundamental problem we're talking about. And it's too easy to say, well, they haven't responded yet. What makes you going to respond here? Well, that's exactly the problem. The government should be making that judgment call. They've got the resources and tools. The fact they don't do it well, the fact that we don't collaborate well today, the fact that we don't do law enforcement online or don't do deterrence well online, yeah, that's a problem to be sure. The answer is not deputize every company in the, in the country like we're, like we're in, in the days of piracy or the wild, wild west. Okay. We have a question over here, yeah? Well, you have the mic. You have your hand up, though. You guys are going to have to fight it out. Denise with CSIS. Um, my question is for the against team. So if you take what Stuart said as true, that a number of companies are already engaging in these types of activities, uh, collecting tangible uh, evidence, you know, in the Sony hack, Mandian, uh, in the PLA hacks, would you argue that we should stop those companies from what they are already doing? Should we prosecute those companies? Oh, not at all. To the contrary, I think that Stuart will Stuart will, will will point out that all of those all of that information is gathered completely lawfully. There's no suggestion that in in identifying the PLA or identifying the Russians in the case of CrowdStrike in the elections, right, that what took place was a violation of the CFAA. Was it Stuart? No, right? No, not at all. So the proof is actually the pudding. You can do all the stuff Stuart wants to do, all the attribution, all the identifying, all that stuff without violating the law. Right? And so there's no need for prosecution. There's no problem here. There's no problem to solve that Stuart gives you. Now, what Stuart really wants to allow you to do, and this is the dirty secret, this is the defining the terms problem, right, is, is what Greg was talking about. It's the punch back. It's to go destroy that data. And maybe you destroy your data, maybe you destroy somebody else's data. Maybe you intentionally, because you're pissed off, because you should be. Right? They took your data, they took your IP, all that time and effort and R&D and money, billions of dollars you spent in R&D. Right? Maybe you go delete their data a little bit too. Because, you know, they did this bad thing to me. Right? That is exactly what you do not want. We don't let other, we don't let the average American take the law in their own hands. Why should we let corporate America? It doesn't make any sense. And by the way, I have a lot of faith in corporate America. I have more faith in corporate America than I do in the government. Right? I believe the government tries to do the right thing. It doesn't always get it right. Right? And I think we should have a healthy skepticism of government power, as I think Greg does. Right? That's where we came from as a nation. But it doesn't mean hand it all over to the private sector in an area that we've always traditionally thought of as a governmental role. No, I think you said it all. All right, all Stuart, right. you want to take 30 seconds to respond in here, too? Actually, take, take a minute, because you were invoked. Okay. So. I, uh, so, provoked. Uh, yeah, uh, what a weird argument that, uh, for international retaliation. We, the People's Liberation Army, have just discovered that uh, uh, we've been embarrassed by somebody who actually was violating U.S. law to collect the intelligence. That changes everything. You know, go, you know, uh, fuel the missiles. I, I, the, the, we're violating, we're likely to violate international law pretty much whatever we do to gather intelligence about uh, the PLA or the uh, Russian acts. And they have, you know, private sector companies have published information that I'm sure would get them prosecuted if the uh, uh, Chinese could have reached them, but isn't going to. The Russians attacked Estonia, and when uh, people objected to it, they said, oh, 
wasn't us. It was our private sector, so no harm, no foul. Uh, that's the international reaction thus far. And uh, uh, in this context, we've provided diplomatic options to the U.S. government, which is, oh, we're shocked that this has happened. We're going to go tell our private sector to stop doing stuff like that. Okay. Uh, sir, now we are, we are going to come to you. Go ahead. Okay, so my question is for both teams, and it uh, touches on what Stuart just said, and it may be a way to square the circle that's been raised. So in the, in the 16th century, there was something called a privateer, and uh, Sir Francis Drake was the most famous one. He was a pirate, but he did missions for the queen uh, and the crown of Ast. And the mechanism for authorizing a pirate to do a mission was called a letter of mark. Letter of mark is a way to authorize a private actor to do missions for the government. And let's call it the public-private partnership of the age of the mercantilism, okay? So letters of mark are actually in the U.S. Constitution as enumerated power for the federal government. They can issue uh, letters of mark to private companies to do government missions. Is this not a way to square the circle in the cyber age, especially since our adversaries are doing it? There was a piece in the New York Times a day or two ago about a prominent Russian cyber criminal who has given all the access to, his, uh, to the information in his uh, network to the FSB. You can talk about the attack on Estonia, that this is all the, they were working with half of the Russian government. So is this antique concept, in fact, not suited to the cyber age? And if our adversaries are doing it, why should not we? I can't believe we got this far with nobody mentioning pir- piracy in the letters of Mark. I failed as a moderator. Good for you, sir. All right, we're going to do two minutes to, on that question to each side, then we're going to move to closing arguments. So you guys, two minutes. So yeah, look, letters of Mark of reprisal, to be sure, in the Constitution, to be sure we've used them with respect to piracy doesn't mean they're the appropriate tool here, right? And by the way, it's not just letters of mark, it's letters of mark and reprisal. So you cannot just go back and take your property back. You can go attack their property if granted that authority by the U.S. government. And we've done it in the past, right? We've allowed U.S. Uh, private ships to go take French ships and Spanish ships during the wars. You know what happened back then, by the way? The wars continued on and on and on because people were making money capturing these ships. The exact reason we built an entire navy a U.S. Navy was to avoid that very problem. We didn't have an effective Navy. We didn't have a blue water Navy back in those days. That's why we use that tool. Today, we don't have a blue water Navy in cyberspace. True. Doesn't mean the answer is, let's go create the, the pirate situation. Let's go create the wild, wild west. It means, let's build the blue water Navy. And by the way, it doesn't have to be a Navy. It can be collaboration between the private sector and the government. I agree with Greg that we don't want the U.S. government all of our networks. That's not what we think as a nation. It's not what we want as a nation. At the same time, there is a role for government to play. It's working with the private sector. It's building interoperability. It's building capabilities. So when there's a national crisis, they can act. It's not privatize the Navy into le- using letters of mark and reprisal. When was the last time that we issued a letter of mark or, and reprisal? You know, I think that we have largely abandoned that because of the risk. And it, it doesn't make sense to insert that risk into the cybersecurity context, particularly where the government isn't going to know or might not know how that authority is being used. I mean, who knows what the company that has that permission would do with it? Um, This idea of licensing these attacks, I think it's very, very risky, and and it's just not necessary or wise to go down this route. All right, Stuart, letters of mark. So, um, and do you want obviously, if you think letters of mark are worth trying, you're on my side of this debate. but I'm not sure that letters of mark directly make the right 
uh, uh, contribution. They are a, a great model in this regard. They were designed to solve a particular problem, which we didn't have a Navy, uh, and we were getting beat up. Uh, and this was a way, and the, the, the worked for the English, uh, uh, because they were up against a not very competent Navy in Spain. Um, and they designed it so that it would achieve the goals they were trying to achieve within the limits that they were trying to make sure were enforced. Uh, I, I think that's the right approach. We, you should design a regulatory approach that says you can go this far and no further. And we can set the limits very close while we experiment to see what works and what doesn't, or we can set them farther away as we get more comfortable with it. Um, you know, this debate is a little, you know, there's a modern piracy debate, right? There are real pirates. They're taking over oil tankers for real. Uh, and we had a long debate. I seem to remember somebody in the Nogime school saying, oh, if you put guns on these oil tankers, you know, anything could happen. You know, they could fire them, blow up. It's, you know, terrible, terrible. Uh, hospitals. Uh, and... Did it sound like and, that? And finally, we said, you know, that's enough oil tankers getting taken over by... Somali pirates in motorboats. Uh, we're not going to allow it. We're going to have people have weapons on their oil tankers. And that has had a dramatic impact on the success of piracy. It's a, it, it's a success story that didn't involve putting the FBI on the tankers. It didn't involve having the Navy accompany every single oil tanker. Uh, it's a solution that was calculated to solve the problem and no more than the problem that we faced. Okay. Shane, real quick on that. Very, very quick. Because you're closing statements. That's exactly right. And where were those guns? On their own property. They weren't allowed to go jump on somebody else's ship and go kill people. They were on their ship to defend their ship. It's just like the home, just like the network, not like you're in the theater world. We're going to other people's ships. The bullets were hitting the pirates' craft. It was their property, for God's sake. Oh, come on. <laughs> come on. And it was international water, probably, too. But, okay. All right. Now we're going to move to closing statements. Each side is going to have four minutes to summarize their main arguments in support of or in opposition to the proposition. Uh, team Affirmative, Stuart Baker, you will go first for four minutes for closing statements. I don't know about you, but I have had my phone stolen from time to time, or actually probably lost it, and then it was picked up by somebody. Uh, and I expect most of the people in the audience have had that experience. And... Um, I've drawn on software that after the first time I installed on my phone so that the phone would do a whole bunch of things once I realized that it, had, it was in somebody else's hands. It would lock down. It would start making noise and display a, a, a message saying, you know, this is a stolen phone, belongs to Stuart Baker, or it's a lost phone. Uh, here's how to get it back to him. Uh, uh, it would delete the data that was on there, right? Uh, it would give me the geolocation of where that phone was, so either I, or more likely in this case, the police could go looking for it. I'm really glad I had those options. And I expect that if you've ever had this encounter, you have the same options and are glad to have them. What I think is interesting here is, you know, if what was stolen was my data from my network instead of my phone, every one of those options would be a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. 
you know, and there could be some grandma in the hospital with with a phone that she bought secondhand on her bedside that we're waking up with that big noise. She might have pictures of her grandchildren that we're locking her out of. Terrible things could happen to innocent people. We don't say, oh, what about innocent grandmas who buy secondhand phones? We say, grandma, stop buying phones off the back of the truck because this, this is what's going to happen to you. Uh, we did not spend... 30 years agonizing over the possibility that uh, dubious innocent third parties might conceivably suffer some damage, so let's make all of these tools illegal. We said, this is an important task. We ought to stop uh, the theft of phones. And we mostly have made it a bad career choice to steal phones for a living. This is great. I would like to see us do the same thing for cybersecurity. Last point. Raise your hand if you think that in the last 30 years of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, cyberspace has gotten safer. So if you got your hand up, you should be voting for Team Negative because they're the proponents of the status quo. Stand pat, don't do anything because bad things might happen if you change. But if you thought, God, yeah, well, it, it hasn't gotten better under 30 years of the regime that they're advocating for, maybe we ought to take a few steps in a different direction. Cautious steps, carefully regulated steps, but steps that use the authorities and the resources in the private sector uh, uh, to address this problem. You know, DHS's budget for the entire civilian sector Cybersecurity is about a billion dollars. <coughs> That's the budget of the two biggest banks for cybersecurity in the United States, and which means that there is massively more resources out in the private sector than there will ever be in government, no matter how many budget uh, increases you get. Budget for cybersecurity in the federal government is going up. 11% a year, this is a great deal. Except in the private sector, it's going up 25% a year. We need those resources doing something other than wandering around the mall waiting for something to happen. We need them investigating these crimes and taking the profit and the enthusiasm out of the people who are uh, victimizing us all. Thank you. Okay. Uh, now for the negative team, four minutes. Jamil, you're going to make, or, or is Greg going to make I'm the closing start statement? Great, you can spend your four minutes however you like. Thanks. Um, I'm tired of this argument that we need to blame the victims for all these cyber attacks. The reality is that a lot of people have devices that they haven't adequately secured. I, I acknowledge that. But that doesn't mean that they should become victims not just of an original attack, but of a cyber attack launched on them by the company that was attacked. Twice victimizing people cannot be the answer to this problem. Second, nobody is advocating that we leave in place the current status quo. We never said that. That's right. Stuart made that up. Um, what, I'm talk what we're talking about is having the government respond to these attacks instead of having the private sector do it. And yes, it needs more resources to do that, it needs more resources in the civilian sector and in the um, armed services sector as well. And Stuart, it might need more resources even in the intelligence sector. Mark this sector. <laughs> you heard um, it here first. You heard it here first. Um, I'm not saying that we should loose the government on everyone and let the government do whatever it wants. 
it operates under um, legal standards that aren't the same as those that apply to private companies. I'll just leave it at that. Well, look, I think, I think that's exactly, I think what Greg has said is exactly right. We're not arguing for the status quo, Stuart. We're arguing for a new paradigm where, in fact, the government works with the private sector to do its job. Now, I get it. Stuart has worked with the government a long time. He doesn't believe the government can do its job. All right, noted. I believe the government can do its job. I believe the government should do its job. I believe the government should privatize its duties out to the private sector at all, ti- at all times, right? I do believe, by the way, in privatization a lot of the time, just not when it comes to actual security. If there's one core thing that we can all agree the government does, it's security. It's national security. And today, the real no BS cyber threat is nation states. The real concern about private action cyber is not grandma in the hospital, although that's an admittedly a good problem, right? It's the nation state. And Stuart would have you just give everybody in the country license to go running around and, and conducting war, conducting pirate wars all over the oceans, all over cyberspace with nation states. That's great if you want to continue wars forward and forward and forward. If you like the wild, wild west, and if you like the old days of piracy, well, then you should definitely vote for Stuart. If you like law and order and you believe in a, in, in, a, in, in a regularized society where the government does its job, the private does, sector does its job, and by the way, they work together like private cops on Sony's property and the FBI or the local PD do. They work together. It works fine. It's not a massive problem. Oh, and by the way, one last thing about Stuart's point. All those things, his iPhone blank, wiping itself out and, and the screen uh, alerting and it buzzing and beaconing out telling you where it is, that's all barred of the CFA. He just told you earlier he's given that advice to people. He just told you it's not a violation of the CFA. So which is it? It clearly isn't. You know it. We all know it. The reality is all the things your iPhone can do are perfectly on CFA. What it can't do is detonate itself all right, and kill grandma or the <laughs> hacker, which is what you want to allow us to do. And we're not going to let that happen. Unless it's a Samsung Note 7. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that brings us to the end of formal remark. If only presidential debates were this civil and informal <laughs> and, and easy to corral. <laughs> Seriously, thank you all very much, and enjoy the rest thank of your day. Shake hands. All right, thank you. Well done. Well, Great job. Okay, that ends our debate. Uh, now, this was one of those debates where uh, the winner is not the side that gets the most votes, but the side that changes the most minds. And uh, um, there was a moment when they opened the uh, envelope and said, the winner is La La Land. No, wait. Um, they actually uh, gave the nod to Team Affirmative, which was Baker and in absentia, Jeremy Rabkin. Uh, uh, we went in deep underdogs. Uh, only 25% thought that hacking back should be allowed. 62% uh, uh, thought it should not. And 12.5% were undecided. By the end, though, we had changed a fair number of minds. Uh, uh, we had persuaded 37%, almost 38%, uh, that they should uh, allow wire ta- or, or hacking back. And only 54% thought that uh, uh, hacking back should not be permitted. So we moved, basically, we moved all of the undecideds and one or two of the uh, anti-hackbackers over to endorsing hacking back. So uh, 
a moral victory, if nothing else, but it was a great uh, show for sure. Uh, that ends uh, our uh, program. Thanks to Alan Cohn and Maury Shank and to CSIS, which did a great job of uh, organizing and uh, taping the debate. As always, we're open to feedback. We're glad to get your suggestions, questions, uh, candidates for interviews, and other topics. Uh, uh, send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, if you don't feel like doing that, you just want to leave us a good review on iTunes or other podcast aggregators. That's how people find us. This has been episode 155 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, uh, don't forget that uh, if you send us feedback uh, that includes someone who should be speaking and we end up getting them on the show, we will send you one of our highly coveted Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast mugs complete with logo. Uh, coming up, we've got Michael Daniel, uh, uh, who had the job that Rob Joyce is taking uh, and is free finally to uh, talk, although he's a, such a cautious guy. My bet is it's not going to be exactly uh, uh, Michael Daniel unzipped, but uh, uh, we're also going to have Josh Corman, uh, Director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative of the Atlantic Council and uh, somebody who's been quoted frequently uh, on cybersecurity issues. We're going to have a live taping extravaganza involving the Lawfare uh, team, um, a, one of our triple entente uh, beer summits where we get podcast uh, veterans from two or three podcasts together uh, and fill them with beer and then ask them their views. Uh, that should be entertaining. Uh, that'll be April 6th. Uh, uh, the Stepto Cyber Law podcast is going to be joined there by the Rational Security and the Lawfare podcast uh, team. Uh, uh, and if you want to come, uh, we'd love to see you. Uh, it's the Old Engine 12 restaurant on 620 North Capitol Street Northwest. We've had two of them there uh, already, and so uh, we usually get a good turnout, um, striking number of uh, eligible single people of both genders. I want to say that because uh, I know it's hard to find folks who fit into that category, uh, and as far as I know, nobody who's podcasting on any of these podcasts fits into the category. Uh, so we hope you'll join us there uh, in person or on the podcast as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 